0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ido Lando, who is a professor of philosophy at Haifa University, and also the author, most recently, of this book. It's called Finding meaning in an imperfect world. So on this show, we've covered a lot of ground. I've talked to folks about economics and psychology and biology and business strategy and data and so forth. Today, we're going we're gonna to tackle the meaning of life, right? So just a little a light topic. But you cover a lot of ground in this book. And I think the main thrust of your argument is you're kind of calling for something analogous to a fallibilist approach to meaning, which is an anti-perfectionist viewpoint. And I think that your arguments are rooted in philosophy, but I wanted to know, most people, I think, outside, if you're not a philosopher, they tend to think that this is something which is in the domain of psychology in the modern world. And so I, I wanted to start off by asking how philosophers think about the distinction between philosophy and psychology, right? And why is it that in the modern world, it seems that psychology has sort of taken over the role that philosophers and and theologians may have had in the past?
1: Right. I think that most psychologists that deal with uh, issues in meaning in life are more interested in the subjective sphere. They talk about uh, feelings, emotions, sensations. And philosophers are also interested in the objective sphere. So, when I look at the psychological literature on meaning in life, it has a lot to do with people's sensations. And a philosopher might ask whether people who feel that their lives are meaningful really have meaningful lives, or sometimes they feel that their lives are meaningless, well, maybe they are wrong again. So this wouldn't be very different from distinguishing between people's uh, feeling that they are moral and asking whether they're really behaving morally. That would be an important distinction for philosophers. They also ask about normative issues, where most psychologists who deal with meaning in life are more interested in uh, descriptive questions what influences people's uh, sensations. And some of the things that influence people's sensations may not have to do very much with the uh, issues of justification or appropriateness of this feeling. For example, it was found that um, if you show uh, people um, a series of cards that are more ordered and then give them some kind of a questionnaire that is supposed to measure the meaningfulness, the sensation of meaning in their life, the sensation that their life is meaningful is stronger. Okay, that's nice, but it might be also helpful for people who feel that their lives are not meaningful. But philosophers are also interested in the
0: objective sphere of the discussion. Right, so I think you address a number of arguments that people make against meaning in their lives. And I guess part of what you're saying is that even though people, as you say, spend more time trying to figure out which movie to watch on a given night than they do explicitly thinking about, right, finding meaning in their lives, they're walking around as if they've made these arguments. And you are saying, let's surface these arguments that you are implicitly living by and let's address them explicitly right? Let's bring to the surface these arguments. So people, I mean, obviously, you know, you're addressing philosophical arguments that have been articulated by philosophers like Schopenhauer, but is it really the case you think that people acting according to implied arguments and that when you, you surface them, they'll kind of recognize them and say, yeah, okay, this, you're right. This is kind of an argument that I've been living by without even realizing it.
1: According to my experience, yes, I've talked with many people who complained to me that their lives are not meaningful. And we um, unearthed or uh, exposed all sorts of uh, suppositions that they had. For example, some people told me that they feel that their lives are not meaningful because they don't know what the goal of their life is. And uh, after we discussed that, and in the cases that I was able to convince them that maybe they don't have to have a comprehensive goal for their whole life in order to have a meaningful life, some of them reported, either at the end of the discussion or a week or two weeks later, (laughs) that they are less troubled by this. So they feel better in that sense. And they are um, at peace with, uh, with the issue of meaningfulness in their lives. Some others had uh, similar questions about death, the fact that one day they will uh, die, and after some time they will be completely forgotten. And the same holds for many other uh, pessimistic arguments against the meaning, uh, against our having meaning in life, or having meaningful lives. I was surprised to see how many of these arguments that some uh, philosophers uh, elaborated very meticulously are actually held in a more coarse way by many many people who feel that their lives are not meaningful enough
0: right and i think the major thrust of your argument in the book is that people are implicitly holding these perfectionist views right that you know if life cannot be fill in the blank x some kind of perfect ideal then it, it lacks meaning completely could you what, what are the various types of perfectionism that people are carrying around with them the general uh,
1: thrust of perfectionism generally is the view or the sensation that if things are not excellent or perfect, and maybe if not perfect, still excellent, extre- of extremely high quality, then they're not worth anything. It's a bit like a person who looks into the sun and then is blinded because he cannot see anything that is in a regular light. And um, some people discuss the meaninglessness or the perceived meaning- meaninglessness of their lives in, uh, in perfectionistic terms explicitly and directly. For example, they say that because they haven't achieved the achievements of, I don't know, Mahatma Gandhi or Rubens or Mozart or Einstein, their lives are not meaningful. But many of the other pessimistic arguments also have a perfectionist streak in them. So I think that some people who tell me that we think that their lives are not meaningful because they're not infinite or eternal, one day they will die, are in the background having this perfectionist standard or presupposition. Some other people who use what is sometimes uh, known as the argument from our cosmic insignificance, so this argument or or feeling has to do with, with the notion that, well, we have some impact on our immediate surrounding today, but what about Alpha Centauri? What about other galaxies? We, we do not impact them. Again, here I think in the background we can detect a perfectionist supposition. Only if I impact the whole universe, not only this galaxy, the whole universe, the whole cosmos, can my life be meaningful. And in this case, it's not that if I'm not Rembrandt or Mozart or Mahatma Gandhi that my life is meaningless. It's if I'm not God Almighty, supposing that there is a God, my life is meaningless.
0: Well, part of it, the first part you mentioned has to do with kind of competitive value, right? It's almost part of our hedonic treadmill, right? That, you know, as soon as you achieve something, you see that there's someone else that's, you know, achieved something even greater. And so you aspire to that, right? And you say that maybe one way to interpret that critique that you're making is that the perfect is the enemy of the good, right? And that we should simply kind of satisfy and be happy with something that's good enough, But then I think you make a little bit more of a subtle point that you're not arguing against idealism, right? You're not arguing against aspiration. You're not arguing against goals and attempts to achieve greatness. You're just saying that you have to do this within reason, right? How is idealism different from perfectionism?
1: Well, I think that both perfectionists and non-perfectionists can have ideals and uh, both can do whatever they can to realize these ideals and even excel and go as far as they can. And it's not always the case that more is better, but in the cases where more is better, then they get more, all that is mm-hmm. fine. This does not distinguish between the perfectionist and the non-perfectionist. I think the distinction is in the perfectionist inability to enjoy also what is less than perfect. So maybe we didn't achieve what is perfect. Maybe we're not like Einstein. Maybe maybe we're, well, in a much lower grade. Can we still see the quality that there is in what we do and enjoy it and appreciate it and see that there is value there and there is meaningfulness there. When we compare a perfectionist student to a non-perfectionist student, it is the same. Both think that, I don't know, 95 or 100 <laughs> is better than, than 70 or 80 and both try to achieve it. But the perfectionist students, when they receive 98 or just 94, they leave their studies because they feel that they are nothings. There are zeros, if I didn't get 100 here, I'm in the wrong field. I shouldn't be doing this. And the non-perfectionist student would also enjoy and hopefully work hard in order to get a higher mark and maybe the best mark. But when what they achieve is less than perfect, but still good, then they can enjoy it and appreciate it. This is, I think, the
0: key difference. I think you mentioned also that there are similarities between perfectionism and narcissism and perfectionism and misanthropy, right? <laughs> so perfectionistic people then presumably, I mean, do they apply the same standard to others, uh which is what makes them, you know, misanthropic? But I think you you also point out that some perfectionists are inconsistent. In other words, they're more forgiving towards others than they are towards themselves and they they hold themselves to a higher standard. And I think one of the things you recommend is that you step outside of yourself and look at yourself the way you would kind of view another person, right? Right. That
1: surprised me immensely when I talked with people who thought that their lives were meaningless because they were perfectionists. They applied the perfectionist standard only to themselves. And they told me that they think that they are zeros, nothings. Uh, Some of them use even more radical terms about themselves and that their lives are meaningless. Maybe there is no real justification for them to continue to live. And when I asked them whether this is also how they judge their siblings, parents, children, friends, they were surprised to notice in almost all cases, not all cases, but in almost all cases, that they do not judge other people as harshly. And this is a case of, I think, inconsistency. If um, my life isn't worth anything because I'm not Immanuel Kant, then also other people's lives, well, when they're not Immanuel Kant, are not worth anything as well. They too lead meaningless lives. And it is very interesting for me to see that many people, so to say, discriminate against themselves. This is not the way we usually think about discrimination. Usually discrimination is, well, I use double standards and I treat uh, myself or my group more favorably than I treat other groups. But here there is some kind of a reverse discrimination, if it can, uh, if, if the term makes sense. I treat myself, I judge myself much more harshly than I judge other people. And I saw that uh, time and again.
0: People were surprised when I suggested that this is the case. I mean, is there any way to get rid of interpersonal comparisons? I mean, a lot of economists and psychologists that I talk to will say, look, this is so hardwired, this desire to compare oneself to others that, you know, you can't eliminate it. But what you can do is you can kind of be selective about the pond in which you, you swim, right? And so you can de-emphasize the comparisons that kind of make you look inferior and start emphasizing the ones that kind of make you look better, right? You can kind of reverse engineer what's important to match what it is that you bring to the table. But isn't that, isn't that kind of a form of, of self-deception in a way? I mean, it's, is that type of, I don't know, self-deception or manipulation of your perspective antithetical to the philosophical enterprise?
1: I would think that the business of philosophy is the pursuit of truth, so we should not try to cheat ourselves or delude ourselves. Sometimes we can try to change the way that we look at things if we think that this is the right thing to do. And I think that competitiveness can be changed. I think that culturally also, some cultures are more competitive than others. And in my own country, I've seen through several decades uh, the competitive values uh, rising with uh, good results and bad results. Mm -hmm. I think that there are also differences between people, and this might have to do also with genetics, but I think it also has to do with education, both at school and at, at home. And I'm a great believer in people's educating themselves also. I know some people who, became less competitive after they thought about it. Uh, they, of course, I perfectly agree, we are in a very strong way wired into some degree of competitivism or competitiveness, but I think it is not the same in all people, and there is, there is a range of ability to increase
0: or decrease it. Right. And I I think you you make some reference to positive psychology, right, which is a big movement. And I think there's obviously some similarities with what positive psychology is doing and maybe the philosophy of meaning. But I think they're very different projects, right? Because identifying the things that make you happy doesn't necessarily tell you why happiness ought to be a goal in the first place, right? right? right. And philosophy is about telling you what goal is worth pursuing not assuming that you're supposed to pursue the goal that makes you feel good or 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 makes you happy right can being unhappy be a goal in one's life can can one find meaning in, in in unhappiness and and suffering right is there is there any reason why we should preference being happy over being unhappy
1: well i think that happiness can be seen as of intrinsic value I mean, there is good reason to be happy just for the sake of happiness. However, that does not mean that happiness and meaningfulness always come together. Many times they do come together. There are many cases in which increasing happiness also increases meaning in life or the meaningfulness of one's life. And suffering, pain, sadness can gnaw away the meaningfulness. Often... To have a meaningful life, uh, one needs to work or to invest and give attention to this. And when one is uh, suffering, sometimes one does not have this uh, energy or, or attention to give to meaningfulness. However, it is, I think, wrong to identify between them. And there are cases in which we see lives that are completely or, well, highly unhappy, but still meaningful. So one famous example was suggested by uh, the Austrian uh, psychotherapist, uh, logotherapist, Viktor Frankl. He suggested that uh, some inmates in the World War II concentration camps, not all of them, actually a minority of them, did succeed in maintaining the meaningfulness of their lives in the camps. Now, of course, they were not happy because they were starved and frightened and tortured and they they were worried about their relatives and so on. But still, it is possible. In a completely different setting, in my own experience, well, I took a course that um, more or less prepared me to practice what might be called late chaplaincy, with uh, terminally sick cancer patients. So after the course, I uh, went uh, to see terminally ill cancer patients and I, so to say, walked them to their deaths, accompanied them till they died. And of course, this does not in uh, any way allow me to make these people happy because they're going to die soon and they are in pains and they uh, sometimes cannot move and they're in diapers and sometimes their family does not come to visit them. And what I used to tell them time and again is, look, I cannot make this into a happy situation, but maybe together we can make this into a meaningful situation. We cannot have your happiness, but we can have your meaning. Now, there are also cases in which I think people diminish happiness, consciously diminish happiness in order to attain meaningfulness. For example, I think that, for example, Nelson Mandela could have chosen to leave South Africa and then his life, I think, would have been happier because he spent so many years in prison it would have been happier, but less meaningful. There was a a Soviet dissident called Andrei Sakharov, who um, was a very famous scientist there. He had to do with the USSR's uh, nuclear armament. And at a certain point, he decided to, to become a dissident. And he knew very well that would make his life much less happy and he paid with happiness, consciously, he was aware of that. He paid with happiness in order to increase meaning in his life. So yes, these are different things. And in some cases, there is a positive correlation between happiness and meaningfulness, and in some cases,
0: uh, no, on the contrary. Well, I think there's sort of a, a folk philosophy that is that says that you know all of the good things kind of align with one another. You know, it's kind of this diamondistic, view maybe it goes back to john locke or even further right that you know if you are doing the right thing if you're doing the meaningful thing then it'll naturally result in some kind of of happiness and in the us we have a shared belief that we all have the right to pursue happiness and and it's prioritized certainly there's nothing in any of our founding documents that says that pursuit of meaning (laughs) is is what we're supposed to be after so when one is happy, how does one know You know that, because I think if you're a philosopher and you see someone who's happy, but it's, they're not living a life of meaning, you would say, well, that's kind of a fake happiness or a false happiness, some people would say. So if, if one is pursuing happiness, how does one know that they're pursuing kind of this false happiness or this meaningless happiness as opposed to something that is uh, more meaningful?
1: I'm not sure that meaningless happiness is false happiness. It is. Uh well, I agree that people like Aristotle and people who accept the heodaymonistic view would accept, would believe that. But if we talk about subjective happiness, I think that people can be very happy, but in the sense that they have a contented sensation most of the time. They are pleased with what's happening, pleasures from here to eternity. But this would lack meaning so in some cases we we may think about i know there is this um, notion of the empty playboy who has fun the whole day but there's nothing of sub- substance there sometimes the person himself would sense that there is something empty here that there is not enough value in one's life in a pleasurable life and sometimes they won't and we might think that yes it is happy it is pleasant but this is not the way of life that we would wish our children to have or we wouldn't like our lives to be like that because there's not enough value we're not seeking probably only happiness i'm still talking now about subjective happiness we are also in a, in a very strong way seeking, I think, meaningfulness.
0: Now you point out that some religions have built in ideas that allow people to be less than perfect, right? And this I found interesting because you know the way I was raised, the view was that if, you know you're supposed to aspire to be a saint, <laughs> right? you know you aspire to be Jesus or you know something really aspirational. And but you say that most religions have baked in this difference between kind of precepts and counsels, and, and you even referred to the Hasidic view that, you know, mediocrity is, you know, is a virtue. Now, that doesn't sound right, but the way you articulate it, right, these benonim, right, the benonim yes. are the, the good enough people, right? Mm-hmm. It's okay to be good enough. Could you articulate, because this, I think, you know, most people think that religions are very idealistic and, and perfectionist. Yes.
1: I think that many religions discuss perfectionist ideals as a supererogatory. So this is beyond duty. If you do it, this is wonderful. You're a saint. But not everyone has to be a saint. And you can enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. You can be a very, very good religious person if you just do the regular duties. I think that in Hasidism, they emphasized it, especially in some branches of Hasidism, they emphasized it by choosing a term that, especially to the modern ear, sounds uh, depreciating, which is mediocre. We usually use the term mediocre when we actually mean to say bad. But they wanted to emphasize that one shouldn't try to, well, poison one's life by trying to achieve what is almost impossible and continuing to do the regular duties, religious duties, and which, by the way, are sufficient burden in themselves. And succeeding in that is enough. Not going further is sometimes even better because in some cases, the efforts to go very far can lead to poisoning or even destroying what you already have. Now, it is interesting that you said good enough because I think this is true also in other non-religious traditions. So the psychologist Donald Winnicott had this term, this notion of the good enough mother. He noticed that many mothers feel very guilty for not being perfect. I myself do not believe in God. I respect people who believe in God. But if we think about belief in God as well, God as a myth, I think that another myth, maybe even stronger, is the perfect mother myth. Being the, the mother that is never, now we would say, a parent, I think, a parent uh, who, who is never angry or exhausted or impatient or um, just sometimes even hates the baby. And he stressed very much that it is important to be not a perfect mother, a good enough mother who does what is necessary and uh, keeps her baby fed and safe and a few other things. And then you can have also many faults. It's okay. I think this is true also of many other aspects of meaning in life. The way we judge ourselves in parenthood, in religion, And in our academic achievements, if we're academics, our ability to understand or enjoy art, if we create art, the level of art that we create. In all these cases, I think there is a big danger of poisoning our lives and feeling that we are not worth anything and our lives are just a burden. When we're perfectionists,
0: now I think you, you also kind of tackle this view that since life is finite and since our accomplishments are so meager, that this you know degrades the meaningfulness of our lives. And you know you use the analogy of floor sweeping, right? I, and I guess you know this is a, a more relatable metaphor than Sisyphus pushing the stone up the slope because we, we all engage in this activity. You know, I mean, right after this call, I'm going to have to go down and empty the dishwasher and and reload the dishwasher. And I probably do this three times a day and, and the dishes never stop. But I do actually find some meager meaning in this. And, and I wonder is, is that just deceiving myself and suppressing any any perspective that would put this in context. If you think about it too hard, right, you could essentially find it meaningless. But I think what you're arguing is that if you think about it hard, but in the right way, you, you can find meaning in the, the mundane and in the, uh, in the transitory. So how, how can one do that? Because I think most people suppress any thoughts of the futility of what it is they're engaging in.
1: I think that when we see the importance of the mundane activities, including repetitive activities, including activities that you invest some work in what you do and you have some results, but they vanish after some time. I mean, you sweep the floor and after some time it's dirty again. You wash the dishes or put them in the dishwasher and tomorrow they will be dirty again there might be some kind of a perfectionist supposition that only what is non-transient is valuable. And I think it's very important to get rid of this supposition. I think that there are good reasons to believe that many transient things are valuable. And that is true also of the good deeds that we do and, I don't know, moments of bliss, for example. You see a beautiful view or you have uh, several uh, moments of great warmth with someone. You feel very close or you have this excellent insight or great aesthetic enjoyment when you hear some music. It's not forever, but it is highly valuable. Now, we can also try to think about it in a eternal terms or infinite terms so to say when we say look it will pass you also will pass maybe it will be forgotten well not maybe it will be forgotten someday when there will not be any more people on this planet no one will know about it but the fact that you did a good deed or that you had this peak experience The fact will remain true forever, even if no one will know about it. So that's one option, but this, in a way, tries again to save the day by looking at eternity or infinity. And that's not the direction that I'm interested in. Even if we accept, I'm not sure that we should accept, but even if we accept that what is transient, what is passing, what will be finished and had a beginning and will have an end, is not as good as what is eternal. Maybe our life would be more meaningful if it were eternal. I'm not sure that's true. And maybe the, this moment of bliss or uh, 15 minutes of bliss, maybe it would be better if they were here forever. I'm, again, I'm not sure about that either. But even if we accept that it would have been better if all these good things were not finite. This does not mean that they're worthless when they're finite. Per supposition, they have less value, less meaningfulness than they would have if they were infinite. But still they have serious value. They are very important. We can be
0: very happy about them
1: and we should appreciate their value, I suggest.
0: So don't you, when you, when you walk past your bookshelves and you notice all the books that you're, you're never going to read and... You look at the map and you see all the countries you're never going to visit, right? How do you you make yourself feel good about that?
1: Well, I try to uh, think not only about what I have not done and will never do, but also about what I have done and maybe will do. And I think that we sometimes, perhaps in our society, which is very achievement-oriented, and as you said earlier, competitive, we're always thinking about what we didn't achieve and will never achieve. And maybe we feel too interested about what other people achieved and too frustrated about the fact that some people achieved more than us. I think that we can also try to direct ourselves consciously because perhaps because of cultural reasons and perhaps because of other reasons. Some people, many people, don't do that enough, but I think we can direct ourselves to what we did do, what we did achieve, what we did understand. And I think these things have a lot of value. In a way, this might be another version of the um, cosmic uh, insignificance argument. I mean, I did not impact anything in another galaxy. Actually, I did not impact anything in this galaxy almost, and on Earth as well. I have direct impact on on very few things and very few people. But here, if I had some good impact, wow, that's a lot. That's very much. And it
0: is also good to think about what I have done. Well, you also argue that a teleological view right can be harmful right i think most people when they think about meaning they think in terms of having some telos right or some purpose but you point out the danger of that view right which is that if you if you push that argument right you know, you say well okay why are you doing this and then why why are you doing <laughs> why do you have that reason and so forth you you can you can push it to the point where ultimately you know you're you're going to find there's there's no there's no solid ground right there's no turtles all the way down that you'll ever find and, and so maybe the need for a telos is is misguided. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Like, cause that, that does seem to be, you know, people, when they think about meaning they're thinking about some kind of, you know, ultimate meaning or, or some, some meaning that's, that's indisputable or grounded in, in some solidity somewhere.
1: Yeah. So I think that there are ends to some of the things that we do that are meaningful. I don't think that we always need ends in order to have meaningfulness or value. So there are cases in which without posing any ends, any goals to ourselves and achieving these goals, we have valuable experiences. For example, I might take the bus and look through the window and see some beautiful scenery. And I may happen to talk with someone and then there is a great insight. As uh, I just suggested, it is very important to allow ourselves to appreciate or value the value that we have. And this sometimes happens also when we do not set goals to ourselves. But even when we accept teleology, Even when we think about goals and we pursue goals, that's a very feasible way to try to make our lives meaningful. I think we should remember that in value theory as well, it is very common to accept that, that teleological chains or instrumental chains, functional chains are not infinite and they do not even have to be very long. So in value theory, it is very common to distinguish between instrumental value and intrinsic value or final value. There are distinctions between these terms. Intrinsic value and final value are not exactly the same, but it's not important for us now to distinguish between them. It is commonly believed that there are many things that we do and that or take part in that are valuable not because they serve any other end beyond them but they are the end and that's perfectly well there's no problem here some people seem to think that since they cannot continue the teleological chain forever or because it does not reach some kind of an absolute end or basis for the whole thing there is a problem dan Ponsalt, for example thought that this is the case but most theorists now I don't Do not accept this view. So let's take something that does not have to do with meaning necessarily. I know I'm walking to the store. Why am I walking to the store? Well, what is the goal? Well, I want to buy their candy. Why do I want to buy candy? To eat the candy. And why do I want to eat the candy? For what purpose? Yes, what is the end of this? To have enjoyment. And why do I want to have enjoyment? Then the reply is just to have enjoyment. The value of enjoyment is in the enjoyment. Now, maybe I will also think that-
0: Wait, do you actually stop at that point?
1: (laughs) As a philosopher, don't you keep going? Definitely, the point is that we'll stop here, yes. So um, maybe I can go on another step if I'll try very hard. Well, why do I want to, to have this enjoyment? Maybe I found out that after I enjoy myself, I work better. Okay, and why do you want to work better? Soon it will end, and all teleological chains end. Why do I pray to please God? Why please God? I don't know, that's the end. The value of pleasing God is in the act itself. And this is true of many, many things, including meaning in life. Why do I want to have meaning in life? Because it is valuable. There is intrinsic value here. And it is not considered problematic at all, the fact that these chains end, because some activities have intrinsic values. The value of of some activities
0: is intrinsic, not extrinsic. They do not serve anything. Now, when one studies science, right? And learns more about causation, right? So whether it's evolutionary biology or whether it's, um, you know, neuroscience, one starts to see that behavior, thoughts, beliefs and so forth are caused by these underlying processes and there may be more determinism and chance than, you know, we believe in our kind of folk, models of human behavior and causation, does, does this serve as, does this typically cause people to lose meaning when they become aware of this? Is, does this pose a, a threat in some way to the philosophical enterprise that we, we are all engaging in?
1: I think that many people are worried about that. Many laypersons are extremely worried about that. And some philosophers are worried about that. And there is a lot of interesting discussion about that. So one way to cope with deterministic, pessimistic challenge to life's meaningfulness is to deny determinism. So some philosophers are determinists and some philosophers are libertarians. And there are also some other uh, positions which sometimes allow uh, degrees of freedom. So that's one strategy. That's one direction in which people try to cope with the deterministic challenge. Another direction, which I I find uh, also very interesting, is to say, look, maybe we don't have autonomy, maybe we don't have freedom, but is it clear that this makes life meaningless? Now, if we think that meaningfulness has a lot to do with value, then I think that when we reflect about it a bit, we find out that there are many things that we can still value under deterministic suppositions. A philosopher called Dirk Perboom worked a lot on this, published very interesting work on this. And let me try to give some examples. I'll start with the weaker ones and then proceed on. Sometimes we think, well, we value things that came without choice, such, I don't know, a guy, someone got inheritance without trying to, to get this inheritance and now they're rich. Okay, maybe that's not exactly meaning life. Let's talk about another thing which might be seen as valuable, which is beauty. Most of us did not choose autonomously to be beautiful. And we still appreciate, we value beauty very much. Still, maybe this is not exactly meaningfulness, but I'll go on from here. I just want to mention that when people become more beautiful because of choice, for example, when they have all sorts of operations in order to be more beautiful. We even value this less than we do the natural beauty. So let's talk about other things that are of value and which we do not choose. Well, let's talk about sports. I think that some of the people that we admire so much uh, in the Olympic games, for example, also so runners, some of them clearly have the genetic input that helps them to do that. And in some other cases, for example, in the case of those two wonderful uh, tennis players, the Williams sisters, they both, I think, had a very strong genetic advantage here, but also their father from a very, very early age, more or less, um, well, cultured or brainwashed them to be very good tennis players. He did not leave them a lot of choice and still many people admire them. Okay, maybe some people think that sports does not have to do with meaning in life. So let's talk about Mozart. In many lists of, uh, we'll give some general example, token examples of people whose lives were meaningful, Mozart appears there. Now it is clear that he had great musical talent. He came from a family of people who who were inclined to music. And he was also brought up from a very early age to be a great musician. It is not clear that he had much choice here. That may be also true of some great painters, some great poets, fiction uh, writers, some of them don't talk about choosing. Some of them use metaphors like the muse wrote through me. Some say that they cannot, cannot do it otherwise. Maybe some of them suffer from some kind of obsessiveness or compulsiveness, as might be true of also some great mathematicians or scientists. And still, we have a lot of respect for them. Now, let's, as a thought of experiment, compare two people. One of them is Shakespeare, and let's say that Shakespeare couldn't but write the things that he wrote because it burnt in him. He would have been restless, suffering if he didn't sit down and write Hamlet and then King Lear. Now, let's talk about another guy who lived there at that time and did choose. But he wrote worse stuff. Whom would we admire more? whose life would we take to be meaningful? I think that most people would take Shakespeare's life. I mean, this is not the historical, biographical Shakespeare. We don't know anything about him. I'm I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is the biographical Shakespeare, but the Shakespeare of these thought experiments or or experiment or, or example. I think most of us would think that Shakespeare had a more meaningful life than this other person who, chose and thought and deliberated and very autonomously decided to write whatever he wrote and it wasn't very good so i'm not sure that determinism if we accept it and maybe we shouldn't accept it but if we accept it i'm not sure that determinism ruins life's meaning i think we can still accept that life is meaningful under deterministic
0: suppositions well but even if they're living the kind of life that we might describe as meaningful they themselves may not perceive it as as meaningful so to what extent is this about finding meaning and to what extent is it about making meaning i think in the beginning of your book you 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 distinguish them How, i mean should we be thinking of meaning as existing under the rocks and and all we have to do is overturn the rocks and we'll we'll, we'll find it in there or is it you know look around and you'll you'll find it in in your garden and you know, the, the sort of Hemingway view, the Hermann Hesse view, the Ingmar Bergman view, or is it, you know, we, we have to go out there and, and make it, right? We have to create it out of, out of thin air, like artists, the more kind of Nietzschean view. Are these views compatible or, or are these very different ways of thinking about meaning?
1: I think that these are different ways of thinking about meaning, but they're compatible ways and they complement each other. So um, if to use a a metaphor, let's say that we want to feel more beauty in our house, to enjoy the beauty in our house more. We can do it in two ways. One of them is to introduce beauty into our house. We can change the furniture if it's ugly and change the carpets and the the pictures and get rid of some of them and uh, get new ones, which will be more beautiful. And another way of experiencing more beauty in our house is to de-trivialize the beauty that is already there because the beautiful picture that is on the wall has become, usually for most people, has become transparent, so to say, after a few weeks. We don't see it anymore. And we can make ourselves aware of this beauty if we try to do that. Now, in the literature on meaning of life, these different ways of doing it can be called, well, achievement, the way of achieving or the way of recognizing. So we can try to achieve value or achieve meaningfulness in the sense that we learn and then we know and we try to develop perhaps uh, loving relationships and go places and try to um, develop uh, the moral or moral activity. This would change our lives in the sense that we will create or even introduce meaning into our lives. But another way of making our lives more meaningful is to become aware of the meaning that is already there. Now, it is amazing, I think, that so many of us are unaware of the immense value that we already have, and we usually become aware of it only when it is gone. And the sorrow (laughs) that we feel afterwards may be an indication to the extent to which it was valuable for us. But until it's gone, or at least endangered, most of us are are not aware of it. And when I talk with people who see their lives as meaningless, I suggest these two directions. So one of them is indeed to work. In in some groups or places, uh, I'm asked to typify myself, and I sometimes reply, well, I'm a working person. And by that, I do not mean that I'm working uh, in order that there would be bread and butter on the table, although that is also true, I'm I'm not a millionaire, but I mean that in order to have a meaningful life, I work. A meaningful life, or meaning in life, is not like a degree or a citizenship. You do something, you get it, and then you have it for your own life. It's more like a love affair. You have to continue to work for this, and, and I work. And I'm surprised that some people who see their lives as meaningless are angered when I explain that they have to work for it. You have to work for other valuable things in life. So you have to work also for meaningfulness. So that is one direction. And that is the direction of finding. You have to think what would make your life more meaningful. And there are all sorts of questions you can ask yourself in order to help yourself to know what would make your life more meaningful and and then you have to go in and do some things. But the other direction, that would be the direction of allowing yourself to see the value that is already there. So sometimes people have some kind of a good love affair or a good love in their life, but for some reason they are numb to it we in general i think have a problem of numbness to value we so to say close our eyes to it and we do not appreciate it as we should and as we can again this is also a kind of work it's a different kind of work it's the work of sharpening our sensitivity to value or uh, Trying to fight our tendency to desynthesize value and resynthesize ourselves to value. And that is finding meaning. And the earlier way is making meaning. So I think we should try, most of us should try both to make life more meaningful and to find the meaning that there is in life. Very often, people who make their lives more meaningful, very quickly afterwards, sometimes because of competitiveness or because of overachievement, very quickly after they achieved value and meaning in life, it becomes transparent to them. It is very helpful to work also on re ourselves to, to the value that already is there. It is like uh, some people with whom I talk are, are like a person who, is, who can't pay the rent because they forgot that they had another bank account with a lot of money there or that there, is, there are some treasures in the attic, and they can use that. And the way of recognizing meaning is more ignored. It is less developed in the literature than the way of achieving value or making life meaningful. And I think it's a pity because for many people, most problems <laughs> would be solved if they only became aware, not theoretically, but in a more presencing way, of the value that already is there. Now, there, there is a fear in some people that if they'll be too content with the value that there already is there, they would not try to achieve more value. So first, I'm not sure that this would be such a big problem, but experience, uh, indeed my limited experience with, with people with whom I talked, everything here is anecdotal. But I did talk about these issues with many, many people. Many people who have developed in the direction of recognizing value have more energy or happiness or readiness to also achieve more value. There is something frustrating in the knowledge, sometimes uh, not completely explicit knowledge, that I'll work very hard for more value and then it will disappear again because I want to be able to recognize it. Recognizing is a very, very helpful direction.
0: Well, I think you're fundamentally an optimist, right? Because you talk about the importance of deliberation. You say, "Look, if you want to find more meaning in life, then you have to you have to deliberate. You have to work at it. You have to pay attention." But there's a whole other tradition in philosophy and literature which says that once you start kind of deliberating, and once you start noticing, and once you start paying attention, then you'll actually start to undermine the things that you think are meaningful, right? You'll wind up like Tolstoy in the in the pit, right? you know, licking honey off the twig while the little ants try to eat the eat the twig off, right? So is that just due to your disposition? or is there a danger that people, when they they stop acting unconsciously and they start put the divertissement on hold and and they they might actually find less meaning? How can you kind of encourage people to embark on this this journey of of deliberation? and assure them that this will, will probably (laughs) result in, in this kind of discovery rather than to some kind of despair.
1: Indeed, it is very common uh, in uh, pessimistic philosophy to, um, paint or present optimists as, um, you know, some kind of fools. They just have a good mood and they're not, they're not aware of the bad things in life. And if they'll think about it deeply enough and seriously enough, if they'll be rational and look at all the evidence, then they'll join, uh, they'll join us, the pessimists. And this is certainly not the view of the optimists. They think that, again, on rational grounds only and basing themselves on evidence, there are very good arguments, which I try to present also in the book, there are very good arguments and there is strong evidence for the optimistic view of life. And there are some optimists who are fools, there are also some pessimists who are fools. Some optimists uh, just go with the crowd, but there are also some pessimists that just go with the pessimist crowd. Earlier, I said that the business of philosophy is the pursuit of truth, and I think this is certainly true also here. So, my my and other optimists' business is not to try to make people ignore the bad parts of life. It is to think both about the bad parts and the good parts, and the way we can perhaps change some things. And... I think, I suggest, that the arguments, uh, the optimistic arguments are strong enough to show that life can be meaningful. Now, I want to emphasize the difference between the pessimistic, the traditional pessimistic view and the traditional optimistic view. The pessimistic traditional view is more, so to say, chauvinistic. Here I don't mean, of course, male chauvinistic or nationally chauvinistic. I'm using the term chauvinistic in the sense that the pessimist thesis is that life cannot be meaningful for anyone ever. Now, optimists present a much moderate thesis. They do not say that life must be good or is necessarily good for everyone forever. They say that For some people, they think usually also for many people, life is meaningful, or if it is not meaningful, with some work, it could be made into a meaningful life, but not for all people, not for all people. Frankl, by the way, thought that all people's lives are meaningful. Many optimists do not share this, maybe overly optimistic view. So. Because moderate philosophical claims are usually stronger to defend, I think we we have an advantage. I think in general, we should remember that life is terrible and life is wonderful. It includes horrific things and it includes very good and wonderful things. And many people, not all people, But many people have quite a lot of power to live their lives in ways in which there is more meaningfulness or good than meaninglessness or or bad. And their lives too, because we're not perfectionists, if we are not perfectionist optimists, but most optimists are not perfectionists, and in the meaningful lives there are also segments of non-meaningfulness or actually meaninglessness and, and suffering and sorrow but all in all the optimist would say there is enough in many cases and in some cases where there's not enough there could be made enough
0: meaningfulness to have all in all a meaningful life so last question in your book you reference a lot of literary works cinematic works Right? essays. You know, I think a lot of people think that if they're going to do philosophy, they have to read philosophy. Perhaps you don't need that, right? There's philosophy that's embedded in literary works. To what extent should we dissolve these boundaries between philosophy and reflective essay writing and literature and cinematography, right? Presumably one can imbibe the arguments you're making without having them be made explicit, without being turned into, you know, propositional logic, right?
1: So in philosophy, there are, there are different traditions and different branches. The method in which I wrote and presented the book does not try to logically formalize the arguments, but still I um, followed what is, what might be called the broadly analytic tradition in philosophy in, in presenting arguments all the time. And the arguments are thus open to criticism, which is the way I think philosophy should be practiced. And uh, I think that some of these criticisms were presented and then replies were suggested and so on and so forth. Now the literature, indeed I rely on a lot of literature, is subsidiary. If I erased all references to literature from the book, it should be as strong argumentatively, I think. But also because I personally like literature very much, I wanted to present some literary examples. More than that, I think that we can find a lot of wisdom in literature. Now, this wisdom is expressed in non-argumentative ways, usually. And we should treat it as philosophers, also with suspicion. We should try to see whether there are uh, presuppositions here that we might disagree with, whether we can try to develop what we find in literature into valid, sound arguments. We should do all that. We shouldn't just say, yeah, well, you see, Tolstoy said this and that. We should criticize when we should criticize. But I think that as philosophers, We can gain a lot if we heed what authors of poetry and literature suggest to us. And I am sorry that a lot of philosophers are not interested in that at all. I think there is much to gain from this, not blindly, not overly admiringly, but with a critical mind. I think we have much to gain from this
0: well Ido, thank you so much for uh, joining me the book is finding meaning in an imperfect world which is certainly the world that we live in (laughs) i enjoyed the book and there's lots more to the book and many more arguments that we barely touched on so thanks for joining me thank you very much i enjoyed it very much thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast if you enjoyed today's episode please give us a five-star rating and review to listen to other episodes